Amen. May God draw our hearts closer to his heart. That this preaching is not just for the sake of preaching and proclamation, but for the sake of change and transformation. I want you to listen to me very carefully in what I'm about to say today because we don't hear it often. Somebody say clarity. I want you to listen with clarity. As a matter of fact, that reminds me of a story of a man who was riding along, going down the street, and he was pulled over by the police. Police stopped him, whoop, whoop, walked up to the car. Police officer looked in the car, and the car was filled with penguins. He thought that was odd, and he said to the man, he says, listen, you need to take these penguins to the zoo. And the man said, yes, sir, officer, I'll do just that. And so the man drove off with the penguins in the car. The next day, the man was going down the exact same street and the exact same police officer pulled him over. Whoop, whoop. Looked in the car. The man not only has the same penguins in the car, but they're all wearing sunshades. The police officer said to the driver, said, sir, I thought I told you to take these penguins to the zoo yesterday. He said, I did exactly what you said, but today I'm taking them to the beach. He heard the message right, or the right message, but just the wrong meaning. I pray that you not only hear the right message, but also the message with clarity. As we continue on in the third part of our series entitled Thrive, say that with me, Thrive. It's how we become a thriving church and a thriving people in the midst of adversity. The church is filled with challenges and we have been examining some of the challenges that we're faced with as a local church. All churches will face, local churches will face these challenges. But the question is, how do we thrive in the midst of these challenges? Let's start at this place. You know, I'm convinced that if you ask most people today, what is the church? What is the church? And then say to them, but you can't use anything outside of the Bible to describe the church. You can't use your experiences, good or bad. You can only use the Bible to describe the church. I'm convinced that most people could not give a good description of the church solely based on scripture. And as a result of that, we have come up with our own interpretation, our own version, our own artistic rendition of what the church is supposed to look like. And yet the church is so far from God's original design. We feel like as a church, you got to have buildings and you got to have all of this and you have to have all of these things in order to be the church that God has designed. It's almost like God instructed us to make lasagna. We started off with lasagna and then down the road we left the recipe and we got creative and out of our own experience we came up with a thing called spaghetti. It's spaghetti but we still call it lasagna. And then one day God calls us back to the original recipe and we see that picture at the top of the recipe. Of what lasagna is supposed to look like and the ingredients inside. Similar ingredients but a different form. And then we have that wow and aha moment. And that's what happens when we go back to the word of God. And look at God's intent for the church. 
See what we have turned the church into. What we have created. Instead of ministry, we have created monsters. Sometimes even in just the simplicity and clarity of the word of God itself. Oftentimes I can just read a passage. Not much exegesis or explanation to the text. And people will walk up and go, wow, wow, that was deep. And I'm going, that's all I did was read two verses. But the reason why it seems so deep is because we're going back to read what God actually had written from the very beginning that we've gotten so far away from that now it seems profound because it's now so fresh. And so in this current preaching thrive, we are examining not only from the word of God how to discover God's idea and intention for the church, his purpose for the church, but how the church can thrive in the midst of difficulties and challenges, which we've always had since the church's inception in the first century, and look at some of the various challenges that they were faced with then and that we are certainly faced with in our contemporary contemporary and postmodern society. I began to start a few weeks ago looking at some of these challenges One of the greatest challenges we have to the church today is individualism and consumerism. We really only want to be a part of the church as a consumer to consume and not to become a contributor. And we come individualistically instead of becoming a part of the community of God, which is God's design for the church, the body of Christ, his bride universal, the family of God, the family of God. And it is destroying the local church, individualism and consumerism because it's all about I instead of about others and ultimately about God. But another challenge we are faced with in the church today from the outside in and now it's in the inside is the privatization of truth and belief. What we believe is true dictates our belief system and therefore our faith. We are not a faithless society. Everybody believes in something or someone. The question is who and what do they believe in and why? Where do they get that idea from? And so when we understand that now people have come up with their own truth. We even hear people say that. Well, I'm going to tell my own truth. You don't have a truth. God is true and he is essentially In essence, he is truth and there is no absolute truth outside of God himself. If you get God wrong, then you don't have truth. It's a challenge. Now we can read from the scripture. We're all reading the exact same text. It's not just a matter of interpretation. It's a matter of obedience. And then we say, I don't believe that. I was talking to a young man while I was in St. Croix who was on the streets and he's smoking that Irby Scurby, which is, it is illegal. And no, I wasn't hanging out with him just to get a contact. But I was hungry afterwards. Um, And he said to me, I believe in heaven, but I don't believe in hell. 
He said, I don't think hell is a literal place for the future. I think I'm living in it right now. When he began to describe his situation and how he's living in the bush under a tarp, I can understand the why, why, why he feels that way. I can empathize with him. Don't come hard and say, oh, you all wrong. You ain't got it right. But I did have to ask him the question. So I'm curious. Why do you believe in heaven? And what is your source for your belief? He said, I believe the Bible speaks about heaven. I said, but doesn't the same Bible speak about hell? And just as heaven is a particular geographical location, so is hell a particular geographical location. And if we say that I believe in this and my source is the Bible, then you can't cut and paste based on your circumstances what you want and what you don't want and form your own truth. Today I also believe, and we've examined this a couple of weeks ago, that one of the greatest challenges facing the local church today is that we're preaching a message that is absent of suffering, sacrifice, and death. Now we preach a message built on and foundationally its premise is on comfort, the comfort of man. And yet Jesus says that if you want to be my disciples, follow me, but pick up your own cross. If anybody wants to identify with me, they're going to have to suffer with me. But if you suffer with me, you will reign with me. And Paul, the apostle, says that I glorify God not only in my life, but also in my death. And he said that while he was waiting state of execution because of his faith in Christ. Everybody in the first, second, third, and fourth century in the household of God and the Christian faith understood that if you sign up for this, you are going to die for the sake of Christ. They didn't sign up to get Mercedes Benz and Jaguars. They didn't sign up to live in gated communities. And although there's nothing wrong with having those things, but the problem today is those things have us. And it's so deceptive that we don't even realize it. So now as preachers to keep people in the church, you've got to tell them what they want to hear. And how God is going to bless them with pleasure instead of there's a blessing in pain. So then the first primary thing that I talked about that's the greatest challenge for the church is the lackluster for the glory of God. There is a lackluster for the glory of God. Even in the church, we preach the glory of the preacher, we preach the glory of the church, and we preach the glory of the honor, the admiration, and we make much of people, but making much of people, we make more of people than we do of God. So we become the center of our own glory. So therefore, existentially, we believe that our existence precedes our essence. And so therefore, we determine what we want to do in life for our own glory versus the design of God for our lives to be glorified. That's a challenge. That's a challenge. And yet churches are filling seats with people who want to be gloried in. 
made much of. I ain't going to no church if I can't feel good when I leave. Sometimes you go to the doctor's office and in order to get us well, they have to bruise us. They say, take this nasty medicine if you want to get well. Go to physical therapy and endure this pain if you want to get well. But today I want to introduce another challenge that the church is greatly and gravely faced with. But I want to show you how we can thrive in the midst of this challenge. I believe one of the greatest challenges that we're faced with today, and it's not externally outside of the church, but it's internally. And that is the disbelief in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. The disbelief in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. And if I could use as a title today, I would use this title, Waiting in Great Anticipation. Waiting in great anticipation. I don't know if you noticed, but the reality is we're living in a world that is an absolute turmoil. We're living in a world and society that is absolute chaos, confusion. It, It is a certified cluttered mess. Depression, disease, disaster, death and devastation. The good news is none of that phases God, our creator, who created this world. Our sovereign God has a plan and a purpose for every tragic event, for every blissful or even bewildering moment. It's just one more step, one more phase, one more piece, just another day of progress and progression that leads him to fulfilling his ultimate plan and his ultimate will in this world that we live in. God has a plan and God has a purpose. And if this church does not understand that, then we are most miserable. And if you don't understand that God will not leave his bride in this mess, but that one day, soon and very soon, Christ is coming back to deliver us from this mess. And if you want to stay here, it's fine with me. Then I'm out of here. Paul says to a body of believers in Thessalonica who believed that Jesus had already come back. It was rumored that he already came back and that they were the left behind. First Thessalonians 1 and 10, he says, And to wait for his son, Jesus, from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. He will rescue. There is a coming wrath. It is going to get much worse. And the news is it's not going to get any better. This world will dissolve in fervent heat. And the wrath of God will be against anything and everybody that is left behind. But we have this promise, not of alienation, but of affection that Christ will come back for his people. You got to cling to that. I don't care what your today looks like. There is a tomorrow in Jesus Christ that looks much different. God is doing something. He's doing something and he's doing something great and something mighty. Fulfilling his plans. Paul says while 
under house arrest, being chained to a Roman centurion, writing to a church that's being heavily persecuted and afflicted. And he gives them a message of comfort about the return of Jesus Christ. And this is what he says, Philippians 1.6, being confident, being confident of this very thing. If you don't get anything else, he says, get this very thing that he who begun a great work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That he's coming back again to finish what he started. And Adam and Eve have not thwarted the plans of God for you and for this world and for tranquility and peace and for his glory and for his beauty. It's not even a detour, it's a speed bump. In the midst of this cloud that we live in. God has given his children, the church of all people, the inside scoop of what to look for and what we can expect. As a matter of fact, Luke, the penman of Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 11. Jesus asked this pointed question to his disciples who were somewhat bewildered and is talking conversation about leaving them. They have left all to follow him and now he's leaving them, ascending into the heavens. The question is, men of Galilee, why do you stand here gazing into the heavens? The same Jesus who was taken up from you to heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into the heavens. Just like he went into the heavens, he's coming back again. Whether you believe it or not, he's coming back Again, one of the greatest challenges of the church that we're faced with today, again, is the, least, the disbelief in the imminence of Christ's return. No wonder we live hopeless lives. We really don't believe that Jesus is coming back in church, that he's coming back soon. We certainly don't live our lives and our actions and our attitude and our motives and our value doesn't reflect like Jesus is soon to return and not just the possibilities of tomorrow, but even now. It doesn't look like we're waiting in glorious anticipation and expectation of the return of Jesus Christ. It looks like we're kids on a school field trip that are just lost. Maybe it's because we don't believe in Jesus' imminent return because we don't believe in his first appearing. Maybe the trouble is we really don't believe that Jesus, God incarnate in human flesh, came into this world. And so therefore we feel that it's an impossibility. He hasn't come back in my lifetime. I've been hearing the old folks say that for years that Jesus is soon to come back. Let me tell you something, when I was a child, watching a black and white television, I didn't know anything about color, t- color TV. And I certainly didn't have any idea that there would be such thing as a 70-inch flat screen TV in high definition, 4K resolution <laughs> that you can plaster on your wall and feel like you're one with the movie. When I was a child and we had a refrigerator. 
I never imagined that I would never have to put water in the ice trays again. But there would be a hole in the door that you stick a cup in and it fills it up with ice, crushed cube, whatever your preference might be, and cold, purified water came out of that same dispenser. I never, I never thought, I never saw in my wildest imagination. When I was in high school, we didn't have PCs, laptops. I took a key punch class where a card came across and you typed and it punched little holes in the card and then I took it over to a data processing machine in a room filled with these reel-to-reel computers that process that information. Now our phones, these small devices have more power than a 10 story building filled with those same computer reels. I never thought, I saw television in the third grade, a man that landed and walked on the moon, but I never thought people would live in space. I never saw it. I never saw it. I never saw a car called Tesla where you could just Start up, get behind the wheel, strap yourself in, hit the autopilot, punch in, GPS, GPS, not a paper map. GPS, where you want to go and it will take you there and you can take a nap if you so dare. And it will even park your car for you. Never saw it coming. And I can't believe in the return of Jesus Christ. Maybe we need to go back down the timeline and just start with creation. (laughs) And how God himself looked out into a void, desolate wasteland. The Hebrew term is ex nihilo. He looked out into nothingness and just spoke words and said, let there be light and created everything that is in existence and his beauty and his reign and his majesty. He did that in his appointed time in his own way. Took nothing and created everything that we see in existence. And then he turned around and destroyed his creation with water and covered the earth with water, saving only Noah and his family. In his duly appointed time, he erased the water, it evaporated, dry land appeared, fruit, uh, fruit, uh, uh, a vegetation appeared, and life began to spawn. They never saw it coming. Even though Noah warned the fool, they never saw it coming. Then Israel was in bondage for over 400 years, waiting for the deliverance of God, anticipating that one day they would be delivered from slavery. And then after 400 years, God shows up in the, on the scene through a stuttering prophet, sets them free. After 400 years of bondage. But they weren't done. Israel not only had to undergo the oppression of the Egyptians, but also of the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, then the Philistines. When we get to the New Testament, they're under Roman oppression. Yet from Malachi to Matthew, there's 400 years of silence. Some 750 years before Jesus Christ was born in that manger in Bethlehem. 
God spoke through the mouth and the pen of Isaiah the prophet and he said this in Isaiah 9 and 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and peace there will be no in 750 years and he didn't give a data calendar he said just look at the times and out of nowhere Jesus shows up straight out of Nazareth John the Baptist comes on the scene and says repent for the kingdom of God is at hand he opened up blind eyes, unstopped deaf ears, caused the lame to walk, cleanse leopards, healed the sin-sick soul and raised the dead unto life. <laughs> then he left. He said he's coming back again. And if you can't believe that he's coming back again, then you can't believe what he did before he got here. And you can't believe that he actually came here. Church, he's coming back again. Well, when I grew up in church, almost every Sunday, I don't care what church you went to, that preacher was preaching about the return of Jesus Christ. That preacher was closing that sermon about heaven. And it won't be long. <laughs> Jesus is coming back. And a cloud of glory. The angels of the Lord will sound the trumpet and the dead in Christ will rise up. Shall I get a witness? Anybody want to go back with Jesus? Oh, Lord. <laughs> ah. <laughs> It comes out every now and then. <laughs> Not only did they preach about the coming of the Lord, but they showed us scary movies. Sharing. It didn't make it for you a three or four year old. They would show, I want all the kids, everybody be here next Saturday morning at 10 o'clock. We're showing the burning hell. We're showing Left Behind, parts one, two, and three. And you're going to sit there and you're going to watch it. That's prophecy. And the old saints will look over at you. Is that what you want in life? <laughs> See the worms coming out of his eyes in hell? The torment, the screams. Is that what you want in life, son? You out there running with them boys smoking that weed? Is that what you want in life? Going to St. Croix trying to get a crowd contact. Is that what you want in life? <laughs> but today we don't preach, we don't teach, we don't even talk about heaven and the return of Jesus Christ. I just want to ask you a question. Could it be because we've made our own heaven on earth? So what's the need for a heaven after this life? If we're enjoying the one we've created down here, 16th century theologian, priest, reformer Martin Luther, 
He said in reference to Christ's second coming these words. There are two days, Martin says, on my calendar. This day and the next. This day, even when you don't know when the next day is, he's got it on the calendar. Church, the saddest commentary we have today, we only have one day on our commentary, and that is this day. But we have not penned in ink that day. We're no longer concerned about that day because we're all wrapped up in what I can get and my comfort for this day. We have a disenchantment with the perusia of Jesus Christ, his return to earth. And therefore, we have now a greater enchantment with the world that we live in and this world's values. So therefore, we have created out of our imagination and invited to sit in our own pews, in our own churches, the God of complacency. He has made his home in the local church among professing believers. Many many congregants and even pastors today feel like if Jesus would return right now that he would interrupt their programs and their ministry. That he would interrupt their building projects and and that he would, uh, uh, if you will, uh, destroy their long-term strategic ministry plans. Young adults today, sad to say, Seem like young adults are content with the trivial pursuits and content with striving for material wealth and for comfort and for pleasure and for worldly achievements and accomplishments and to be liked among their peers. And the old folk ain't no better. We're so engrossed in our satisfaction of being retired and enjoying their retired life that if Christ came back right now, he would interfere with my retirement pleasure that I've worked so hard to attain. Even at funerals. And I remember one not long ago where a man died, had a heart attack the day after he retired. And people sat there in the church sad as if it was so tragic and said, it's a shame he worked that hard in life. but never got to enjoy the fruit of his labor. Now, if he's going to hell, that's one thing. But if he's going to be with the Lord, he won't enjoy the fruit of his labor. It's a stark contrast that we live in today compared to first century Christianity and Christians. They understood the suffering in Christ. They understood what they were signing up for. They they understood. They understood that when you say that you follow Christ, there will be persecution. And so therefore they looked for the return of Jesus Christ. The Aramaic Maranatha, come Lord, come. Yet at the same token, my keen observation, not only my pastoral experience, but my Christian walk and journey. I says that too many Christians today believe that heaven is too distant and eternity is too abstract and that Jesus' return is just it's too theoretical. It's not practical. So in stark contrast, we don't live like those first century Christians looking for something that was so great and so marvelous, so beautiful and so eternally satisfying to see Jesus and to be made like Jesus 
that eclipses and transcends across all the pleasures that we could ever afford in this lifetime. Because they didn't have those pleasures. Now we got degrees hanging on our walls. We got platinum cards, black cards. We got all of these luxuries and amenities that have been given to us. So we have no need to look for Jesus' return because he's just going to spoil everything. We may differ as a church and as Christians in terms of when Jesus will return, exactly how Jesus will return. We may have these eschatological views that differ one from the other. But at the same token, whether there be varying millennial views or various views about the tribulation, pre, mid, or post, I think in Orthodox Christianity and standing on the foundation of the word of God that we can agree to this one thing. Jesus will return. And he's coming back soon. A.W. Tozer said that when he returns is not as important as the when he returns is not as important as the fact that we are ready for him when he does return. That's the question. Are we ready for his return? And for Christians, though, the most important question to ask is not if Jesus Christ will return and not even when Jesus returned. That's that's unknowable. Even Jesus, when he was in the earth, says he didn't know when he was coming back. I know he knows now outside of this realm of the earth, but the most quest, most helpful question to ask is not when and not how, but so what? What difference does his return make, especially on us today? So what? <laughs> what bearing does that have on my decision making on the life that I live and my values? So although it's not an unimportant consideration to consider when he will return, but it's not the most urgent. Again, the question we should be asking is how do we live in light of his imminent return? Five things I want you to jot down. We're going to move through this real quickly. We're going to get on out of here because I'm hungry. (laughs) I wish I could give you a more spiritual answer, but. I ain't have breakfast this morning. I was in a rush. First thing, first thing I think we need to do while we're waiting. Somebody say while we're waiting. Is we need to be watching. Say watch. We need to have this sense of awareness in our anticipation on waiting for Christ's return. We need to, we need to watch. To watch it means to be alert. It means to be vigilant, it means to be sober-minded, it's, it's military terms, it means to stand guard, be on duty, have a keen, keen awareness. Matter of fact, Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 42. Jesus says, watch therefore, for you know not the hour the Lord is coming. We don't know when he's coming. He said, further along, he's coming like a thief in the night. I'm from Detroit. One thing I've learned about thievery is they don't call you and give you a warning and say, I'm going to hit your house tonight about 1.30 in the morning. It's a surprise. Jesus says, I'm coming, and it's a surprise, but I am coming, so therefore, watch. 
Watch. Because we don't know when he's coming. Watch. Be vigilant. Be sober-minded. Be alert. Be attentive. But then there's something we should do while we're watching. There's a posture and a position that we ought to have as Christians no matter how perilous and difficult the times might be. No matter what the circumstances and the winds and storms might look like in your life. He says while we're watching there is a stance that we ought to have. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in his first letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 13. Watch. Stand fast in the liberty, in the faith rather. Stand fast. Stand firmly in the faith. In the Christian faith. Be brave. Be strong. The reality is you're going to be hated by men. You're going to look like an oddball because of a strange life. And the strangest values you have as a Christian that sets you apart from everybody else. I ain't talking about because you don't wear makeup. I ain't talking about because your dress is dragged to ground and can't nobody see the ash on your ankles. I'm not talking about. I'm talking about because you've made Christ preeminent in your life. And he sanctified you. The world can see that and know that you're different. In other words, your Facebook page don't look like their Facebook page. Your tweets don't look like their tweets. Your Instagram posts don't look like theirs. And when everybody's talking about somebody else behind their back, you realize your conversation about them is nothing but blessed words. Although you could say bad things. Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave and be strong. But then he says something else we ought to be watching for in these last days. That it can not only get us off kiltered as a church, but it can derail the local church. It can have you worshiping another God and you don't even realize it. This is what he says we ought to watch for. John wrote in 1 John 4 and 1, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God. Test those, don't believe every spirit, but test those spirits. You got to try those spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Many, and there's more today than when he spoke these words. But it's hard to distinguish the one from the other. So he says, test those spirits. I've been in church all my life and I heard the saints, God bless them. You probably heard them too say, we got to try the spirit by the spirit. That ain't nowhere in the Bible. Didn't even come close. You don't try the spirit by the spirit. Here's the reason why. You got a crooked spirit and I got a crooked spirit. Don't try my spirit by your spirit because my spirit nor your spirit is the rule for absolute truth. The way we try the spirit, i.e. what people are saying and whether or not what they're saying is of God and they're sent by God. The ultimate test is you measure what they say like the Bereans by studying the word of God daily to prove whether or not what they're saying is truthful or not. Trying no spirit by no spirit. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 24 and 24, what we ought to be watching out for. He says, for false Christ and 
and false prophets. Two distinguishing differences. False Christ. He's not talking about necessarily that people are going to come and present themselves as Christ. But when they're going to come and they're going to come in the role of Christ, they will position themselves in such a way that they will make themselves look like Christ in the eyes of the people. In other words, they will become Lord over the people and they will Lord over you and misuse you. False prophets will rise. And listen to this. They're coming with a bag of tricks. How many of y'all know tricks are for kids? But Paul says, when I was a child, I did childish things. I did tricks and I was amazed by the tricks. But when I became mature, I put away foolish things and falsehood. He said, these false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the very elect of God. In other words, the very elect of God cannot be deceived, but they will come close to it. And the reason why is because you're very elect by God. If you're chosen by God, you're truly saved, then you're diligent about studying the word of God, being able to discern truth from falsehood. It's not just a New Testament warning, but even in the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy, God Yahweh spoke to his people in Deuteronomy 13 verses 1 and 2 and says, If there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, prophet or dreamer of dreams, God just spoke to me. And gives you a sign or a wonder, and listen to this, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass. Of which he spoke to you saying, let us go after God, other gods, which you have not known. Let us not serve them. What God is saying is, especially in these last days, between the Antichrist and the false prophet, ultimately agents of Satan. They will give people the ability, humans. To do things that are superhuman. Illusionists are good with sleight of hands. Even so much so, I saw one of the illusionists on television. And he was walking across the swimming pool, walking across water. And I'm trying to figure out how he did it. Sleight of hand, if you will, or the camera, whatever it might be. Got glass under the water. I don't know. Or it could just be demonic. In other words, there are going to be people that are going to come to church and say they're prophets of God, sent by God, that's going to call you out and tell you stuff about you that only you and God know anything about. But God has given Satan the ability in this world where he's the prince of to be able to look into your life and to reveal those secrets And Satan's goal is to derail you from the Lordship of Jesus Christ. To derail you from the truth. So you can be comfortable to sit back and worship the God of comfort and pleasure. And listen to men instead of the word of God. And create your own idols. And miss out on the return of Jesus Christ. So we ought to watch, we ought to watch, 
while we're waiting. But then secondly, he says, we need to warn others while we're waiting. Somebody say warn. We need to warn. We need to warn folk. We don't warn folk no more. We just think everything is just, you know, if you want to be blessed, just come to Jesus. If you want money, come to Jesus. If you want, want to be healed, just come to Jesus. Jesus is a healer. Jesus is a provider. But you got to warn people too. That's prophetic preaching. That, that's what prophecy is about. Prophecy is not about when you open up your mailbox tomorrow, there's going to be a blessing in there. Now, prophecy is you either get right or you're going to burn and fry hell. But if you trust in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. You got to warn people that there's coming a day of accountability. That this life that we live in our very lives doesn't belong to us. It's been purchased by our Redeemer, by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we are blood bought. He's not only our creator, but he is our, he is our Redeemer and he paid the ransom on our behalf. He owns us. We are not our own. So we got to give an account. And when Jesus comes back, that's going to be the accounting day. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 verses 10 and 11, For we must all appear, all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, in light of that, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. In other words, you got to preach hell. You can't just preach heaven. You can't just preach earthly blessings. We gotta tell them that there's a reality, that there's a real hell. You don't go there because you've been bad. You don't go to heaven because you've been good. You go to heaven because of the grace of God through Jesus Christ, His sacrifice on the cross, and by that grace, if you accept Jesus Christ as the gift, then you will have everlasting life. You go to hell not because you were bad, but you go to hell because you rejected the one and only sacrifice and gift, Jesus Christ. So we warn, we warn, we warn them. We warn them that tomorrow is not promised to you. We warn them that this is the day of salvation. Tomorrow might just be too late. Remember we used to hear that language in the church? I believe in the doctrine of election. The only problem I really have with it is I don't know who he's elected and who's not chosen. So we preach to all. We demonstrate Christ and Christ's likeness and his love to all. We share the gospel with all. <laughs> and we let God do the rest. But we have to let people know, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6 and 2, for he says, in an acceptable time, I have heard you. And in the day of salvation, in the day of salvation, in other words, it's coming a day where there's no saving. In the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now, now, let them know the sense of urgency is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of the Lord. There is no purgatory. There are no second chances. This is it. You make good of this life and trust Christ as your Savior. Or if not, you're hell bound. You got to warn them. This ain't no game. And that's not the only thing you tell them. 
So I went from, <laughs> I went from the school of hard knocks. That's all they preach in one sense was hell and heaven. And they preach 90% hell. <laughs> Am I right? That's old school. They're going to get you back all five nights of this revival because on Sunday, you're going to say, if, you, if you're not here, you're going to bust hell wide open. <laughs> Scaredness. Then as began to move along in this contemporary age, they say, you don't preach hell to people. You preach the love of God. You ain't trying to scare people into heaven. You want to love them into heaven. That's got to be a balance. A parent that ultimately loves their child, you got to scare the hell out of them sometimes. While you're loving them, amen? I ain't cussing, I'm just telling you, all right? Not only are we to watch while we're waiting and warn others while we're waiting, but we ought to work while we're waiting. (laughs) Somebody say work. We ain't just sitting by idly waiting for Jesus. I'm just waiting on Jesus to return. You can have this whole world. Just give me Jesus. I'm just waiting on. No, 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 no. We are called and designed by God, placed here in this strategic time and moment by God to work while we're waiting in anticipation of Christ's return. Ultimately, God is at work in the earth while we're waiting. And God has invited us to join him in the work while we're waiting. And to say that I don't want to engage and join God in the work while he's waiting is saying that you do the work and I'll just do the waiting. Then why are we still here? Do you understand that the reason why God has left the bride? Okay, look at it this way. When Jesus comes back for the church, his bride, everything changes. Everything changes. The only reason why he's left his bride here is because we are the only saving agent for this world. Other sheep I have, Jesus said, that are not of this fold, but they will hear the shepherd's voice and then they will come to the corral. The church is the light. The church is the salt. But when the light and the salt is removed from the earth, this world is in trouble. We're the only ones God has given this message of hope to. And we ought to work. We ought to demonstrate Christ-likeness. We got to join Him in in the work as we realize that the day of Christ is rapidly approaching. Jesus says in John 9 and 4, I must work the works of him who sent me. And if Jesus came to work, what makes us think think that we are exempt from the work? If it wasn't for his work, we wouldn't have the ability to work. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. For night is coming when no one can work. Jesus says, when I come, the lights will go out and there is no night shift. We got to work while it is day. And what does that work look like? You say, well, I don't have a title. I don't have a position in the church. I'm not ordained. I didn't go to seminary. I didn't, I'm not trained for this. Well, what kind of work do you do on a daily basis? <laughs> you go to school, that's work. You work out at the gym. You work your way through the mall. 
And all the while we're working. Paul says to the Ephesians in Ephesians 5.16, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. We make the most out of every opportunity knowing that while God is at work in the earth, he's invited us to join him in the work. And while he's working on us, he's working through us to demonstrate his work so that the world might know him. While we're working, fourthly, we're waiting We ought to be worshiping. Somebody say worship while you wait. Now the saddest thing, one of the saddest things we've done in the church is we have separated worship and work. Worship is what we do on Sunday mornings, 8 or 10 o'clock. We come to the gathering and we sing worshipful songs that exalt God and we we pray prayers and submission and petition to God and we give our offerings and worship to God and we hear the preacher preach and acknowledging the glory of God and worship is exaltation and the worship. And then when we leave the church, Monday morning comes and then we go to work, but there's no worship. That was for yesterday, Sunday morning. But then Monday morning we're working, but we're not worshiping. And so if that be the case, then you, we're only worshipers two hours a week. No, you gotta, you gotta understand that God has called us to worship in our work, not worship our work. But we're on assignment come Monday morning, going to school, the unemployment line, the mall, the job. What does worship mean? It means to adore God. Above all, to treasure Him as the highest treasure, to esteem Him as the highest, to glorify Him, to honor Him, to magnify Him, to put His beauty on a pedestal that the world might be able to see. So when I go to work on Mondays, I'm not just working a job for a paycheck. I'm not just fulfilling my hard labor in school that it might pay off with great dividends for my comfort and pleasure. No, God didn't take me in my sleep last night to glorify him on the other side because he wanted me to worship and glorify him on this side. In the place that he has placed me, wherever that place might be. I don't care if it's prison, glorify him in your work. Make much of him, the most of him, that the world might see an invisible God through our visible works. Let your light so shine before men, that light is Christ Jesus, that they might see your good works. And that all leads to this, not a paycheck, and that they might glorify your heavenly Father. That they might glorify your heavenly father. That they might glorify him. That they might enjoy and engage in the privileges that he has given us. That they might glorify him. Yeah. 
The reality is God has given us work to enhance our worship. They're not two separate things. He's given us work to enhance our worship. Let's go back to the Garden of Eden. Before sin, God didn't create a church for Adam. He placed Adam strategically in the garden and said to Adam, I'm giving you custody of everything. You're in charge and I want you to work. I want you to name all the animals and give them identity. I want you to work. And then he created the woman out of the man and said, you're his helper. Come alongside of him. Work to help him. But you work together. And he didn't say anything about and then come to church on Sunday and then you go back in the garden on Monday and you work, but on Sunday mornings you work. No. In other words, what he said is, while you're working, you're worshiping. You're honoring and glorifying me in the given assignment. What I've called you to do. You don't separate the two of them. They work hand in hand. That's the reason why Paul could write to the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31. Listen to the simplicity of his instruction. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, whatever you do, he chose a menial task, eating and drinking, coffee and donuts. And whatever you do, Do all, do all to the glory of God or honoring God in it. We're honoring God in it because there's worship. And so therefore, work enhances our worship, but worship empowers our work. When we know that we're doing this to honor God to the best of our ability, it's not for the pleasure of man or just for a paycheck or for my own satisfaction. I just need to get the job done and get up out of here. But I'm doing this because God has blessed me with this job. In eternity past, he chose this moment, this day, and this hour, created me in his image and his likeness and said, I want to be on this job, sitting in this chair, driving this truck, whatever you do. I want to be taking out this trash because, and I'm going to do it through you so that I can be seen and glorified in it. <laughs> and so then we're, we're worshiping while we're working. In the midst of our waiting. And then finally. While we're waiting we're worshiping. And we're working in our worship. Here's the reason why. Fifthly. So that we can be his witnesses. <laughs> so that we can be his witnesses. Witnessing is not so much what we say. Yes we have to say something. Because that is the purpose of the gospel. How can they hear. Except someone is sent. To speak. We got to say something. But our work gives us opportunity to say something. People don't care anything about what you say. They care about what you do. 
People don't, they ain't gonna read a track, they're gonna watch our tracks. And it is through our work, through our labor of love. How are you today? Girl, if you only knew. Sit down, let's take a minute and let's talk about it. Can I take this opportunity and pray for you? People know that you love them and they see the love of God. And it gives us the opportunity to say, hey, you know, I know you're concerned about your present. And God is concerned about your present state and affairs today. But nothing slips past God and he has a purpose for everything. And the purpose sometimes of pain is to bring us to a place of persistent inquiry where we ask, where am I at in my relationship with God? See, as Lewis says, God shouts to us in our pain. It's like a megaphone to arouse a deaf world. Whispers in our pleasure, but he shouts in our pain to wake us up. Say, trust me. God wants you to be his witness. To make him the diadem of your life. To make him that star in your crown. We are reflections of his glory. So while we're waiting, we're witnessing. We are his witnesses. (laughs) Understand this clearly. That identity precedes task. When Jesus says to his disciples before his imparting that the Holy Ghost will come and he will give you power so that you will be witnesses. Not that you would go witness. He will give you power so you the person will have an identity as the witness. So who we are precedes what we do. Identity precedes task. One of the reasons why we failed at the task is because we haven't completely identified our identity in Jesus Christ. So we ought to live like Jesus is coming back. He's coming back soon because he is. Martin Luther again says we ought to, and I quote, he says, we ought to preach and live as if Jesus was crucified yesterday, rose from the dead today, and that he's returning tomorrow. That's how we ought to live. That's how we ought to live. We have to make sure that we're good stewards of God's time, of the very breath that he has given us. And for God to show us that everything that we have belongs to him, that when we die, he even takes away the very breath that we think we possess. He says it's mine. And then physical life ceases. Until he give it, gives it back again. <laughs> Growing up back in the day, your parents would give you chores, especially mama. Your mama would say, I'm about to run up here to the store and I want you to clean this house up while I'm gone. Y'all remember them days? We say that now and our kids be like, but I ain't messed it up. We had opportunity to have an opinion back. It wasn't a dialogue. It was a monologue. And you just said, yes, ma'am. Even in your heart, you were like, please. 
Mama said, I want you to clean this house up. When I'm gone, I'm going to go up here to the store. And she not only said, I want you to clean it up, but she turned around and said, and you better do a, a good job. You just don't, don't be just like, I, I pushed the broom and pushed this over here in the corner. No, no. You clean up and you better do a good job, which means I'm coming back. Am I right, Pat? I'm coming back and I'm inspecting your work. And when she went out that door, there was an anticipation of her return. You knew that she was coming back. And you kind of even timed it. Well, she normally is 20 minutes to the store and she's going to be up there for a while trying to pick through them collard and mustard greens and because she don't want to pay for the stems so she's going to break them off and leave them in the store. <laughs> Y'all know how we do now. That's mama. I ain't paying for this. And you can wait around as long as you want to. But you knew she was coming back. Am I right about it? And if you kind of timed it like, oh, it's going to take her a good hour and a half, you better believe about 45 minutes later, it's like, oh, shoot. Mama's coming back. I got to I gotta get it done. But what was our motivation to not only obey Mama and cleaning the house and taking care of the house when she was gone, fulfilling our assignment? With anticipation that she was returning. What was our motivation? Let me give you a few and the same thing applies in principle to Christ's return. Number one, you knew it wasn't your house. When mama told you to do something, you needed to do it because she constantly reminded you. This ain't your house. This is my house and I want my house to be clean. And if you want to continue to stay in my house... You need to abide by my rules. You need to get your assignment done. And ain't like kids nowadays growing up. I can't wait till I get grown. Oh, my mama tell you in a heartbeat. If you ever came close to those words, <laughs> you ain't got to live here. This ain't your house. Church, God has given us an assignment. This is his house. It doesn't belong to us. We're just stewards. <laughs> it's like when you go on vacation and you're in an Airbnb. I don't care if it's on the beach and how plush it is. You can prop your feet up on the coffee table when you get there if you want to. But at the end of the day, it ain't your house. Seven days later, you got to get up out of there. And while you're there... If you don't take care of it, they're going to charge you for it. Clean up. Damages. Why? Because it ain't your house. We have to give an account to God for the assignment. The task that he has given us. Why? Because we don't own anything. It belongs to him, but he's called us to be stewards of it. Mama said, clean my house up when I'm gone. And I'm coming back to make sure you did a good job. But the second reason motivation is because you respected and feared mama. You respected and feared. You understood at the end of the day, she might be a little harsh and a little rough around the edges, but my mama loved me. And so therefore I respect her. But not only that, but you fear mama. <laughs> mama say, I will beat you down and you believe that with all your heart because you've seen it demonstrated on your older brother. 
I will beat you down. You understood this in principle, that if I don't carry out the assignment to the fullest, there are consequences. There are consequences. I got to give an answer to mama. If I don't do it, there's consequences. Oh, don't think you're going nowhere this weekend. You ain't going nowhere. And don't ask me for my car. No, 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 no. Uh-uh. I'm hot with you from the last time. You ain't going, you're going to sit right here. You get it done because we understand that we fear and we respect mama. But there's a third motivation for getting the, the task done before mama comes back in anticipation of her return. It's because you want to please your parents. You felt like they were worthy to be pleased. You want to hear their praise. Every child lives for the praise of their parents. You want to hear them, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I ain't asked you to rebuild the house. I just told you to clean it up, but you did a good job. You've been faithful of a few things. You didn't do it exactly like I would want it done or I would do it, but, but you did good, son. We all live for that. You know what I want? I just don't want to make it to heaven. Making it to heaven is because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and through his grace, his finished work on the cross. But by his grace, that same grace, that enabling grace, I want to know that I live life to the fullest for his glory. My assignment, my task was done and I can hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I want to look in his eyes and know that I have pleased him. And there's a fourth reason why. We got the task done. Mama gave us in the assignment in anticipation of her return from the grocery store. It's because we knew Mama went to the grocery store and Mama come back. She's going to have some goodies in the bag that we like. And Mama had a way of just messing with your mind. She reached down in the bag and pull out that double double Dutch chocolate ice cream that you love so much in that bag of Twizzlers. You say, oh, mama, you got my dust chocolate ice cream. And mama will look over her shoulder and say, did you clean up the house? Did you do what I told you to do? Well, all right, I'm going to check it out. Don't you touch that ice cream. Put that bowl back down until I look at Am I right? But you know what I'm telling the truth. You ain't getting man thing until the inspection is done. And then mama say, not, you didn't even take the trash out. Well, can I get a bowl of ice cream for it? No. Get the trash out. We understood that there was rewards. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I'm looking for that day when Jesus comes back with my double chocolate ice cream. And I will no longer be lactose intolerant. I'm going to eat the whole thing. I'm going to eat them twizzlers up and never have a cavity and I ain't ever brushing my teeth in glory. We got to understand this concept. No work, no play. You knew you wanted to go to the movies and you need to get some money for mama to go. Mama said to this house is clean, don't ask me for nothing. That's what Peter could say in Second Peter. He says, finally there's later for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. But Peter gives us the insurance. It ain't just for Pete. He don't have just a crowd of righteous for Pete. But he says, not only to me only, but all who have loved his appearing. 
I don't know about you. Anybody love is appearing? Anybody you can't wait for Jesus to come back? Oh, I'm looking for that great day. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of the archangel of the trump will sound and the dead in Christ will come up out of the grave first and then those of us that are still alive will be caught up in the air to meet him. We'll live with him forever. Listen, listen, you got to understand this. When we get to heaven, we're going to recognize Jesus. But we're not just going to recognize him because of his beauty and his glory and know that he's Christ. But we're going to recognize him because he's the only one in heaven with scars. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he made his appearance to the disciples and even the doubting Thomas. And when he walked in the room, he said to Thomas, who didn't believe that he was raised from the dead, if you really want to know that it's me, touch the hole in my hand, the scars. That's my mark of identity. With So you will know with assurance that it is me, the risen Savior. And when Jesus ascended into heaven, his glorified body didn't change. He's going to be the only one in heaven with scars. And it's because of his scars that took place 2,000 years on Calvary's cross for our sins. Now it comes to prophecy and fruition. By his stripes, we are healed. No more scars for us. No more pain. No more suffering. No more sickness. No more disease. No more poverty. No more wars. No more death. I know my Redeemer lives. And I know one day I'll recognize him by the scars, nail scarred hands. And if you know that your Redeemer lives, you ought to shout on this side. For what he's done on this side is your Redeemer. And practice the shouting when you get on the other side. <laughs> we used to sing a song years ago. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing there will be. When we all see Jesus, we will sing and shout the victory. And the old folk will start making up verses after that. We're going to have a time. We're going to have a good time. Good time. Good time. I heard the old folks say some glad morning. When this life is over, I'll fly away to a home on God's celestial soil. I'll fly away. Church, I'm looking forward to that day. Our ancestors sung while they were working in the fields. Swing low, sweet cherry. Coming for to carry me home. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to that day. Soon and very soon, we're going to see the king. Amen? I said soon and very soon, he's coming back. Don't let this world fool you. He is coming back. And he's coming back soon. And let me tell you this way. If you don't believe that he's coming back soon, let me do a little simple math for you. He's coming back and he's coming back soon. And he's one step closer to the day than he was yesterday in coming back. That's simple math right there. He's not adding days to his calendar. The days are being subtracted. Church, the question is, how shall we live in light of his return? Not when he will return. Not if he will return. But how 
shall I live. Let us pray, Father God. Thank you, O Lord, for this day. Thank you, O God, for the light of Jesus Christ, that bread of life, that water for a thirsty soul. Lord, there are those, no doubt, here that are hungry and thirsty. Those, O Father, this morning that are seeking, O God, Jesus as their Savior. Somebody, O Father, realize like the rest of us, all have sinned and come short of your glory. But I pray today, O Father, that their hearts would open up, O Father, they would invite you to come in. Say, Lord, here I am. I am the one. I am that person today. This is about me and you. Realize I'm lost and I don't want to leave this church lost. Today is the acceptable time of the Lord. Today is the day of salvation. Lord, I don't want to waste another day with slothfulness, with a wasted life sitting on the sidelines of life. I want to fulfill and live out my God-given design and purpose in Christ Jesus. Lord, save me. If you invite Christ into your heart, he will save you on this day. And not just for this day, but forevermore and all eternity. And one day, as the old folk used to say, we will sit at the welcome table with Jesus. We will eat in fellowship together. God will sustain you by his grace, but you got to trust him. If you're here today and you know Christ is your savior. But at the same token, you realize I have not been living out my God-given purpose. I have not been living to the fullest. And anticipating Christ's return. And that one day I've got to stand before him. I've got to give an account of what I've done in this life, good or bad. I've got to answer to Jesus. Let us get our hearts right with God today. God, we are here today. That you would cleanse us. That you would make us whole. We come in a spirit of repentance, oh God. We come today with a sense of humility. Lord, that you would cover us not only in your blood, Father, but you would change and transform our lives for your glory. Even when we leave this place, oh God, may it be evident that Christ lives in us and that we're living for his return. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Come on, let's magnify the Lord in this place.